scripture passage for this morning's sermon is from Leviticus chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. Leviticus 19. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all, on the third day it is tainted. It will not be accepted, and everyone who eats it shall bear its iniquity, because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for those that you have drawn here this morning, and I'm thankful for those who decided to stay back for the good of their families. And I pray that you would give them fruitful times of worship this morning as mothers and fathers and children gather together around the Word of God and worship Jesus Christ even though they can't come to this building because you are alive in all places at all times. You are no longer located in one temple or one building or one place, but wherever two or three are gathered together, there you are in their midst. And so, Lord, I really do pray with all of my heart, with all the passion I could muster, that you would grant the Holy Spirit to the families of glory of Christ and churches around this state right now that are gathered in their homes to worship your name. Father, do a great thing that we cannot see with our eyes, but that we trust by our spirits that you have done. Father, you are the joy of every longing heart. I love that line because it's true. And I'll tell you, this heart longs for you, Lord. I am overwhelmed at times by my sin. But when I think about you as a Savior, I get even more overwhelmed with the sense of grace and mercy that you are to me and that you are to us and that you are to everyone who believes throughout the world from every tribe and tongue and nation. Lord, I thank you for who you are. And I pray that now as we turn to Leviticus and meditate together upon how Christians can make good use of the law, I pray that you would manifest yourself among us this morning, Father, and show that the things that we're talking about today are true. Let us not just talk about principles as though they're just ideas, but I pray in Jesus' name that we would encounter the great and mighty and merciful and living God this morning. In your name and for the glory of your name we pray. Amen. Well, you all know that for the last several weeks I've been laying groundwork for our series through the first five books of the Bible, which are called the Pentateuch, a name which means a five-part book. And so far we have learned three lessons. I've laid down three sort of foundational principles that I hope will carry us through the next year or a year or year and a half as we work our way through these books. First of all, the Pentateuch is the Word of God and we should approach it as such. Now, I know that that's an obvious point to those of us who believe and have been around the church for a while, but the reason I wanted to make the point is because I think in practice, many of us believers, we either skim through or skip over completely much of what's in these five books. And what I want us to see over the next year or so is that there are many, many glorious things in these books, 
I want to see the Lord help that those books live for us as the Word of God. And so that's why I wanted to lay down that principle. And we'll come back to it over and over and over again. I pray that the day will come when we have the kind of passion about the Pentateuch that David did. Secondly, the Pentateuch in the Bible as a whole is primarily about God. He's at the center of it. All of life is about God and all of the Bible is primarily about God. Of course, the Pentateuch in the Bible addresses a host of issues that have to do with us. But the point here is that God is the Creator and we are not. Right? Amen? God is at the center of everything and we are not. And when we get that right, everything else in life falls in place. And I think that we'll see as we consider carefully, piece by piece, what's in Genesis through Deuteronomy, we'll see that the key to understanding it all and applying it fruitfully to our lives is seeing the centrality of God in it all. So the Bible and life itself is about God. Finally, last week we looked at the relationship between the law of Moses and the gospel of Jesus Christ because as those who follow Jesus Christ and have been freed from the law, we have to think about how we are now to relate to the law. As a church, we're about to spend the next year, year and a half, immersing ourselves in books that the New Testament says we're free from. So we have to ask the question, should we be doing that? And if the answer is yes, then why? And if not, then why not? And so you know that there's much that could be said about this. But last week I laid out a a five-part Uh, response to the whole issue, and I just want to briefly reiterate that and then get to Leviticus 19. Here's what I concluded last week. First of all, the law derives from God Almighty, and therefore the law is good. Whatever our relationship to the law is, we need to be clear that the law is good, and it has always been good, and the New Testament is clear in its uh, witness about the law that the law is good. God gave us the law in out of grace and out of love from His heart. And his intention was to pave a path by which we could have relationship with God. He was not intending to imprison by the law. He was intending to free by the law. And so the law itself is good. Number two, however, even though the law is good, human beings are hopelessly flawed. And no matter what the intentions of the law were, the truth is that because there's brokenness in these hearts of ours, we will never ever be able to obey the law of God. This week, just take one of the Ten Commandments, Read it carefully, take it seriously, and try to obey it without fault. And I promise you, you'll find out that you can't do it. Not even for one week can you obey one command of God perfectly, and neither can I. We're deeply, deeply broken people. So number three, Jesus Christ came to do for for us what we could not do for ourselves. He came full of grace and truth to fulfill the law because we could not fulfill the law. And yet the demand was there from God, you must fulfill the law. And so by His great grace, He took on flesh, did for us what we could not do, and now whoever believes in Christ, it's as though we have fulfilled the entire law. To believe in Jesus Christ is kind of like crawling up inside the skin of Jesus Christ, becoming one with Him, so that when the Father looks upon us, He sees Jesus and not us. When the Father looks upon us, He sees righteousness and not sin. Praise be to God. Christ came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so, for those who believe in Jesus Christ, beloved, the good news is that we are free from the law. Indeed, we are free. That means two things. It means we are free from obeying all the dot and tittle and all the obligations of the law. 
And we are free from the curses of the law when we fail to obey. We are free in Jesus Christ from the law. Hallelujah. This week the Lord has been dealing with me about some sin in my life. And at times it has been pretty stinging. The Lord knows how to rebuke. He knows how to cut. You know, the, the, the Hebrews chapter 4 says that the Word of God is like a two-edged sword that goes all the way to the bone and the marrow, Right? So we can live on the surface of things and we can cause other people to think whatever we cause them to think. But God sees right through it all and gets right to the core of the issue. And when He puts you in the center of His sight like that, it's piercing. It's really piercing. But I kept saying to the Lord all week and writing in my journal, Lord, there's a strange joy and a strange mercy in Your rebuke because You're on my side. And even though you have to deal with me as your son, there's discipline, yes, but condemnation, no. I still have to have my behavior shaped into his image. And that will be the case till the day I die. But I am no longer under condemnation and neither is anyone else who believes in Jesus Christ. Praise be to God, we are free from the law in Jesus Christ. I think the weight of this news is just greater than what we can imagine, and I pray that God will give us insight. Finally, number five, given all that I've said then, how are we who believe in Jesus and free from the law, how are we to approach the books of Moses? Well, last week I gave a two-part answer, and afterwards Mike Perry shared a third answer with me that I agree with, so I'm going I'm to amend my answer last week and just say three things. There's three ways that we as believers ought to approach the law. First of all, this is what Mike added, we read and study the law to learn about God. And here's the idea. Even though we're free from the law, God Himself is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? God never changes. So when He revealed Himself through the stories and the commandments of the Old Testament, He's still the same now as He was then. There are people who will teach you that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. And that's, tr that's not true. There's a Hebrew word for that, hogwash. It's just not true. It's absolutely not true. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so when we see what our God did in those days, we see something real about who He is in our day. Amen. Number two, we read the law to see what great a Savior Jesus is. As I said to you earlier during the Advent devotional, when your sense of sin rises and rises and rises, it's actually at the end of the day good news because then you can see that Jesus is that much greater of a Savior than you thought He was. The more the law helps you see what was required of you, and the more you see your failings in those requirements, the more you can see the glory of who Jesus is and that He did it all for you. When you take a law and meditate deeply on it and understand it more than you ever have and then see what Christ has done for you, you will worship Him. You will rejoice in Him. So we go to the law to see how great a Savior Jesus is. It's okay to say the Lord fulfilled the law for us, but I think it's important to press into that and ask, well, what does that mean? And what it means is you read any given law and know He did that for us. He obeyed it perfectly. And the more we see that, the more we rejoice in Him. Finally, we read and study the law to be shaped into His image, to become holy as He is holy. Even though we're free from the law, He still uses it, uses us, uses it to make us to be like Him. He uses it to make us holy as He is holy. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. So, with all that in mind, I want to turn to Leviticus 19 now. And I want to demonstrate for us how these principles can be applied in the context of an everyday Bible study. 
So what I have in mind now is a person sitting down in a, in a private quiet time or a family devotional or a community group meeting or Sunday school or at Caribou over coffee with a friend or something. You open up, say, the book of Leviticus and you ask yourself, how as a Christian am I to approach this book? Today I'm going to try to help you just very practically see here's how. So let me begin by reading the text for us one more time. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that it may be accepted, so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it, or on the day after. And anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted, it will not be accepted. And everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity, because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people." Let me begin by just making three real quick observations of the text. And then I want to go back to verse 3 and talk for the rest of our time about this command to revere our mothers and our fathers. But first, three quick observations. First of all, in verse 1, notice that the Lord is speaking through Moses to all the people of Israel so that everything that follows in these verses is for all of us. He's not just speaking to the priests and other leaders, in other words. Priests and leaders in those days and elders and other leaders in in our day are certainly meant to set the pace, but the will of God for the people of God is for all the people. So as we read this, you should take it personally. As we read this, you should think to yourself, this applies to me. Secondly, one of the most important things that could be said about God is that He is holy. And here's one of the key texts where that is said. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. In the men's ministry, we've been studying R.C. Sproul's book called The Holiness of God. In fact, there are three copies of it out there on the bookshelf that are free for anyone who doesn't have one already. You're welcome to take those. That book has been one of the most helpful books in my life to help me get my mind around what the holiness of God is. So I want to talk with you about that just for a second here. The word holy literally means to be, to be set apart. It means to be in a class by yourself. It means to be in a category by yourself. So normally, when we think of holiness, we think of purity. We think of morality. And certainly that is a part of holiness. But in essence, what the word means is to be set apart, to be in a category all by yourself. So when you apply that to God, here's what it looks like. Since God is wise, we can say that God is fully set apart for wisdom, and He doesn't save any part of Himself for foolishness. He is fully set apart for wisdom. In His wisdom, God is holy. He is completely set apart. He is infinitely and utterly wise. No foolishness in God. God is holy. We think about the goodness of God. Since God is good, He saves no part of Himself for evil at all. James says there's no shifting shadow in God. There's no darkness in Him at all. There's not a single iota of the being of God that is evil. The whole Eastern idea of the yin and the yang, the light and the dark, good and evil, being all mixed up in one great creative being, is a false idea. God is perfectly good with no admixture of evil, period. He is wholly good. 
And whatever attribute of God that we could put on the table here this morning, the idea is that God is completely that thing. He is infinitely that thing. He is set apart to be whatever it is that He is. And He reserves no part of Himself for the opposite. God is holy. He is pure. So if He's wise, He's purely wise. If He's good, He is purely good. God is fully set apart. He is holy all the way to the core of His being. And the holiness of God is probably the most important thing that could be said about the character of God. So whatever else we think about the Lord, whatever else we say about Him, we must always keep His holiness in mind because it's at the center of whatever else He is. Even when we think about the wrath of God, the anger of God towards sin and sinners. We have to to contemplate that in the context of His holiness because He is always holy and completely holy. This leads to my final observation here, namely that God created us in His image, which means that human beings are designed to mirror the being of God. We are designed to image Him. Think of the word image as a verb now. We are designed to image God. This is why the Bible says to us over and over again, You all be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Beloved, that is an invitation to come and be like our Father. I used to hear that command as a sort of a threat. Be holy as I am holy. Because I knew that I could never do it. I knew I could never live up to that, and it felt overwhelming to me. But the more I've grown in Christ, the more I've learned that that command is actually an invitation. Charlie, come be like your Father. I am holy. Come be like me. Be holy as I am holy. Image me in a way that's true to my being. And so this command to be holy is not a command to to overburden us or to put something on us that's beyond us. Rather, it's a command to come and be like the One who created us and saved us and loves us through Jesus Christ. So, we can say that at the heart of every other command, that Moses gives four other commands here in this text, And we can say that at the heart of all of them is this desire in God to make us holy as He is holy. When God issues a command to us, what He's trying to do is to make us like Himself. He's trying to invite us to be like Him. So, with that in mind, with His holiness in mind and our image bearing, our, the call to holiness in mind, now Moses repeats four commands in these, in these verses, starting in verse three. Number one, revere your father and mother. Two, keep the Lord's Sabbaths. Three, don't turn to idols or make gods of metal or what have you. And then number four, offer peace offerings precisely as I have commanded. So let me say a word about the peace offerings. And then I want to come back and talk about the first commandment there in verse three. The inclusion of the peace offering in this text assumes something that's really important for us. It assumes that we are going to fall short and break all the commandments that Moses just reiterated. If you think about it, in the law, the presence of all the sacrificial laws assumes that we will fall short. This is why we say that even in the law, there is the grace of God. Because He issued the command, assume you would fall short, and then and then made a way for you to come and be in relationship with Him in spite of your sins. But here is the thing. The offering that God required for the forgiveness of our sins had to be done exactly as the Lord commanded it to be done. And if you look at those verses, you will see that if that is not done, if the exact prescriptions are not followed, God says, I will not forgive the sin, and I will cut that person off from their people. 
Now that's pretty serious, beloved. It might even seem a little harsh to us, but it's not harsh. What you have here is a sinner coming into the presence of a holy God and God making a way for that sinner to be right. And the only thing that that sinner then ought to do is submit themselves to God and say, yes, Father, I will do things in the way that you have required. When God makes a way for my sin to be done with, but I do it not in His way, but in my way, I arrogantly shake my fist at God and say, God, I know better than you. And that kind of arrogance is what got us into the problem in the first place. And so when a holy God says, yes, I will forgive your sins, but you must do it exactly as I've required, then the only thing left for us to do is to humble ourselves and submit to Him. His desire, at the end of the day anyway, is to bring us into relationship with Him. He's not against us. He is for us. And so the point here is, don't play with a holy God. He is not to be played with. Uh, you guys, one of, one of you said something about that, that part in Genesis. Did God really say? You know, the serpent came to Eve and said, Did God really say you should not eat of that tree? And that's really the essence of all sin. The tempter comes and said, Did God really say you had to do it just like this? Did God really say you could only come to God through Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life? And the answer is yes, God really did say and if we don't submit ourselves to precisely what God said, we will not be accepted and we will be cut off from our people. But in our case, it'll be much more serious because if any of us gets cut off, we're cut off in a permanent way. I'll say more about that when we go back through the law another time. With that in mind, I want to now go back to verse 3 and muse with you about the law to revere our fathers and our mothers. And what I want to do now is just show you a pattern of how you could take a law and ask a number of questions as a believer and I think fruitfully meditate upon that law. I have six questions that I would uh, uh, commend to you and I put all these in your bulletins, by the way, and they're up here on the PowerPoint as well. So let's say you sit down in a private Bible study or a family devotional or a community group or whatever and you're opening up Leviticus 19. What should you do? Well... Identify one of the laws, revere your father and mother, and then ask six questions. Number one, what is the meaning of this law? And the reason you have to ask that question, obviously, is because you can't obey what you don't understand, right? So we have to be clear. What is it exactly that God is commanding us to do? Number two, what does the law teach about God and my relationship to Him? The Bible says that the command to love the Lord your God is the most important command in all of the Bible, which means that every other commandment in some degree has to do with this command to love God. And so every time you meditate on any command, you should think about what does this command have to do with God and my relationship with Him. Likewise, number three, ask, what does this law teach about others and my relationship to them? You know that the second most important commandment is to love our neighbors as ourselves, right? Many of the laws in the Old Testament are simply fleshing out what that means. So every single time we read a law, we should ask, well, what does this have to do about loving our neighbors? Number four, what does this law teach about my sin and the sin of others? In other words, how far have I fallen short of this command? Number five, what does this law teach about how Jesus fulfilled the law? and therefore became a great, great Savior for me. And finally, number six, what does this law teach about how I should live? As I said, even though we know the law has been filled for us or, or fulfilled for us, He still uses a 
to shape our behavior. And so let's go back now to verse 3 and apply these questions to that particular law. You shall revere your father and mother. And what I'm trying to do is just demonstrate for you what you could do in your own quiet time. So, first of all, what's the meaning of this law? In other places it says you shall honor your father and mother. Here it says revere your father and mother. It actually flips it, your mother and your father. But same exact kind of command. So what's, what's at the heart of this law? Well, when God first spoke the Ten Commandments to His people, He spoke, obviously, Ten Commands. The first four had to do with our relationship to God. So so put God first, uh, don't create idols, uh, keep my Sabbaths, whatever they all are. The first four are about us and God. The second six commandments are about our relationships with others. When God turned from the, the vertical commands to the horizontal commands, the very first thing He said is, honor your father and mother. And I wonder, why is that so? Why did God turn from this relationship, the vertical relationship, as soon as He brings His attention horizontal, the first thing He said is, mankind, honor your father and your mother. What's that all about? Well, here's my attempt at an answer. In the beginning... You know that God created man and woman in His image, part of which means, as I said earlier, we are to image Him in the world, using the word image as a verb. We're to reflect the being of God in the world. I would never deny that every single man and every single woman is made in the image of God, but as we work through Genesis 1 and 2 together, I think we're going to see with more depth that the fullness of what it means to be the image of God has to do with one man and one woman in a committed covenant relationship, a monogamous relationship for life. There is something about the marriage relationship that is imaging the being of God in a very unique way. And here's what I think it is. I think that the marriage relationship was designed to image the relationship that exists inside the Trinity. If you read the Bible carefully, you'll notice that the Bible says many times that the Father loves God the Son and that God the Son loves the Father. But it never says one single time that the Father and Son love the Spirit or that the Spirit loved the Son and the Father. Now I'm sure that the Holy Spirit loves the Father and Son and that the Son and Father love the Spirit. I'm sure of that. But the point is, there is a very unique relationship between God the Father and God the Son, where God the Father is the leader, God the Son is the submitter, God the Father is the instigator, God the Son is the responder, God the Father commands, God the Son obeys. And I do believe that marriage was designed to reflect this reality in God. There's something of the beauty of two human beings who are sharing a fullness of love at every level, spiritual, physical, emotional, sharing all of that love that is imaging the communion between God the Father and God the Son. It's a beautiful thing. Now, just like God the Father and God the Son, when we as a man and a wife come into a fullness of a relationship, what happens? Well, human beings are created out of that relationship. So God our Father is a creator. He creates us in His image and He makes us to create other beings as well. Now obviously we are not God. We don't create in the way God creates. We know that God Himself is the one that knits our children in the mother's womb. We know that. He gets all the glory as the Creator. But the point is He designed marriage to image the creative capacities of Himself. Marriage is imaging this. And when a child is born, the parents play the part of God in that child's life. They are not God, but they are imaging God to the child. 
And so now, the primary commandment upon humanity is, Beloved, when you're born, look to your parents and honor them. Revere them. We'll see when we get to the Ten Commandments in a few months that the words used for honor and revere are the exact same words that are used of God when it says honor God, glorify God, fear God. So God has created a situation in which human beings are to honor their parents as a, as a sort of a training class, if you will, for figuring out how to honor God. You are to honor them as if they were God. You are to, in a sense, practice on your parents so that you learn how to honor God in the way that you should honor Him. So what does it mean to honor our father and mother? It means to acknowledge them as a sort of creator in our lives and to honor them for the part that they play. That's what the command means. Let's turn to the second question now. It says, what does this law teach about God and my relationship to Him? Of course, a lot can be said about this. But in the interest of time, I simply want to say that this command teaches me that I am to honor God with every single part of my being. I'll say in a few minutes that not all of our parents are honorable. And even our parents who are honorable, they're not perfectly honorable. But in learning to honor our parents, we learn to honor a God who is absolutely and totally perfectly honorable. The whole relationship between a child and his or her parents was designed to make me a worshiper of God. So that's what this command has to do with the Lord. It is a training ground to make me a worshiper. Finally, or next, number three, what does this law teach about others and my relationship to them? Well, I've pretty much already said that. It tells me that I should honor my parents as I would honor God. I should honor them as a kind of creator in my life. And realize that without them, I would have no life. I would have nothing without my parents. Now, very briefly, what do you do when you have parents who are dishonorable? Especially if you have parents who are abusive to you. I grew up in a home where my parents were not Christians, but they were very good to me. They treated me well emotionally. They provided for me everything. My parents were were good people. So I don't know what it's like to have abusive parents. But one of my good friends, Danny Kane, out in California, his parents were very abusive to him. They, they abused him physically, emotionally, spiritually, just about every way you could think of. They abused this poor young man. And he told me that when he came to Christ, one of his deepest difficulties was what to do with his parents every time he read this commandment. Honor your father and mother. And he would think back to the abuse that they doled out to him and say, God, how should I do that? One day he was praying, and he told me that the Lord showed him that he could honor the position that his parents took, even if he could not honor their behavior. One of the, the illustrations of that that came to my mind this morning was, was Bill Clinton, when I thought about the behavior that he underwent in the, inside the walls of the White House that none of us could honor. We could not honor his behavior, but we could honor the presidency. We could honor the position even if we could not honor the man. And so I'll say more about this in in future months here. But for those of you who came out of abusive situations, you cannot honor your parents' behavior, but you can still honor the fact that God used them to create you. They still have that position in your life. So find some way by the Holy Spirit to honor your father and mother and know that God is their judge. God will see to it that they answer for what they have done. Hopefully, they'll come to believe in Christ and be forgiven for what they've done. The fourth question, what does this law teach about my sin and the sin of others? Well, I wish I had another 30 or 40 minutes here because I'd love to tell you more about how I abused my parents. They were so good to me. 
But when I was 11, my dad died, and I got into drugs, and I left home at about 14 years old, and I, for about three or four years, I literally put my mother through torture. I really did. She told me that in those years, every time the phone rang, she thought for sure it was going to be a call from the police that I was dead. And in those days, I couldn't have cared less. I never hardly even thought about my mother for three or four years. In fact, I didn't even see her for two years, between 15 years old and 17 years old, because I was so caught in my rebellion. So I I have sinned greatly against my parents, and even though they forgave me, and even though God has forgiven me, I live under the weight of this a lot. And when I think about not only my own sin, but my sibling's sin, and I think about my friend's sin toward their parents, and I think about the sin of the world toward all of our parents, and I think about how arrogant youth are in our day toward older people, and especially toward their parents, it just grieves me. And when I think about the dishonoring of parents, not only in America, but across the world, I just get overwhelmed by how much humanity has fallen short of this command. God intended a good thing for us, to learn how to worship Him by honoring our parents, but instead we have told Him, no, we don't want to do it your way. We're going to do it our way. We're going to treat our parents in any way that we like. And so as I contemplate this, I just feel the sense and this, this personal weight and this corporate weight of sin getting heavier and heavier and heavier, which leads to the fifth question. What does this law teach us? about how Jesus fulfilled the law and therefore how great a Savior He is. And all I can say, beloved, is even though I and you and all the world have messed us up really bad, the truth is that when Christ came to this world, He honored His parents in total perfection from the time He was born until the time He died. I know some of you who are biblical thinkers are going to wonder about that time at the temple when Jesus was 12 and his parents were headed home and he stayed back at the temple. You'll probably wonder, was that disrespectful? But it was not disrespectful. Jesus was not disobeying any command of his parents. And I think he was displaying with his behavior, even as a 12-year-old, that his real father was God. So he was never disrespectful toward his parents. And even at the end of his life, beloved, when he's hanging on a cross and suffering like you and I can't imagine, instead of just thinking about himself, he's thinking about his mother who is sitting right there. And he said to her, sitting there just filled with blood, about to die, he says, he says, mother, behold your son, the apostle John, and son, the apostle John, behold your mother. In other words, he sees to his mother's needs while he's dying on a cross. I had every opportunity to care for my mom's needs and so many times I just threw those opportunities away. Jesus Christ was under the most difficult duress we could ever imagine and even in that, He saw to His mother's needs. He obeyed this law for us. So now when I believe in Jesus, His actions toward His parents come upon me as though I had perfectly acted toward my parents and I'm free from my sin. Praise be to God. I still feel a grief about it, but He fulfilled the law for me and freed me from my sin. And so this leads to the final question, then what should we do? What does this law teach about how we should live? And the answer to that is that just because Jesus freed us from the law and fulfilled the law for us doesn't mean that we're now free to dishonor our parents. It means that we're free to be like Him who saved us. In my case, my parents have passed away, so still kind of musing about how I can honor my parents. But for most of us, your parents are here. And whatever Christ has done in your life and in your heart to show you your sin and His saving grace in your life, the answer to what you should do now is simply learn to be toward them as He would be toward them. Honor your parents. If you can't honor their behavior, at least honor the position that they have.
Beloved, the point of the message today was simply to demonstrate to you how Christians like us who have been freed from the law can sit down and fruitfully meditate through the law. This has been a bit hurried, I admit that, but over the next year or so, we're going to come back to this again and again and again. And I want to encourage you to sit down with, say, the Ten Commandments this week and just pick any commandment that the Lord puts on your heart. Take these questions and just work right through them. Study through them, meditate through them, and I think that you'll see the fruit of your labor there. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that your passion for us is to make us holy as you are holy, that we might image you, that we might be like our Father who saved us. And I thank you that even the particular command that you issued today to honor our parents was designed to help us to be like you. And I pray that it would have that effect, Father. I pray that as our sin against our parents lands upon us, that your grace would also land upon us. And I pray that then you would teach us how we should live for the glory of your name and the good of others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.